The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. I would like to welcome back Dr. Kathy Alexander and Dr. Mark Vanderwall. Kathy is an associate professor at the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife Conservation at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And Mark is an ecologist specializing in plant herbivore interactions and large mammal migrations. His career is focused on developing outreach programs in Africa directed at improving capacity of local communities to manage and conserve essential natural resources. Kathy and Mark founded the Caracal Biodiversity Center in Botswana. Kathy and Mark, today our discussions are going in a direction that you're both very familiar with and both from your background to the current work you're doing in Botswana. Uh, welcome aboard. Are you there? Morning, Ellie. Nice to join you again. Thanks for having us. I'm it's thrilled to have you back. Morning, Ellie. Good morning, Mark. It's nice to have you back, too. I hear you're in the States right now. I am. All right. We've managed to connect from Botswana before, so it's nice to have us all on the same uh same uh, continent for a change. Kathy, I understand you're one of the few selected to present with the World Health Organization and the Secretariat to the Convention on Biological Diversity Regional Workshop in Mozambique for a panel on the interlinkages between public health and biodiversity, which is the subject of our talk today. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means so that uh, our listeners can understand th this linkage? Well, thank you, Ellie, and yes, it was a tremendous honor to uh, be able to participate in something uh, so important, and we're getting geared up for that meeting. <clears throat> the big uh, thrust with that is that the c conservation of biodiversity isn't about whether or not the loss of a panda in particular or a rhino is something that we would hate to see happen, but that biodiversity is intrinsically important uh, to human life and that we depend on services that arise from other species, and that if we want to secure the health of humans and the ecosystems on which we depend, we need to consider biodiversity in that framework and see that biodiversity is mainstreamed across different governments and into different sectors, such as public health. And In fact, this was uh, one of the big goals out of the uh, Strategic Plan for Biodiversity that was generated in 2011 to take us through 2020 under uh, CD, uh, CBP, CBD. 
CBDs, Convention on Biological Diversity. That's right. Okay. So this all sounds very interesting, and um, I understand what you're what you're getting at, but perhaps we can um, answer this or direct this in a little um, easier way. A, a basic question. So why should we care about biodiversity, and why should we conserve? What's the value of a species, of a landscape, and what is the linkage between these and our biodiversity and our public health? Perhaps you can help us understand, because um, I'm not sure people often think of these two things in, together in the same sentence. No, and I, I agree with you. I think uh, traditionally we tend to think of uh, loss of biodiversity as the loss of a, a particular species and uh, our, our efforts to save that species and that biodiversity is simply that effort, again, to um, try to preserve species across different ecosystems. But it's actually more fundamental than that in that as we lose species, the reason we lose species is because there are changes in ecosystems and their ability to uh, maintain resiliency in the face of change. Now, that those impacts aren't just to species, but to humans. So as ecosystems degrade, their ability to provide services for wildlife and for people, for plants, and all of the interactions that occur between different species and an ecosystem, they start to fall apart. And so as that's so what we're talking about is not just the crashing of the planet, like it's something out there away from us when we talk um, in the news or the headlines about the disappearance or the extinction of elephants or polar bears or rhinos, like it's something very distant from us. What you're getting at is that with the crashing of these species or these extinctions, it's going to have a very real effect on the services that we depend upon and get for free from our planet. And that's that's really the crux of it. And the people who will be most affected are those that are least able to adapt, the, the poor amongst us, the poor that are dependent on the natural environments. We will all be affected, but it will be those that are very poor that will feel it first and feel it last and not be able to do much about it. And that's where the issues of trying to streamline across different sectors, development, health, how do we protect these ecosystems so that people uh, across different sectors, but particularly those most vulnerable, are able to live their lives in a healthy manner. Um, and, and you bring up an important issue is really the, the taxonomic imbalance. We, we tend to focus biodiversity on panda bears or rhino or the loss of the, you know, the, of a particular species that has um, a lot of, uh, is a, you know, a charismatic invertebrate species as opposed to understanding biodiversity as being the plants and the insects and the trees and every species. Now, we may not even know what those species are and what their loss will do in terms of the environment uh, that we're, we're, we're considering. But it is important that we remember that that's not just about rhino or panda, uh, panda bears. It's about these systems and all of the components that go in to maintaining their functionality. So I'm going to take us off on a little tangent here since we've been talking about these charismatic megafauna, the panda, the polar bear, the rhino, the elephant. Um, there's been some contention lately, and even at the last CITES meeting, which just finished a couple of weeks ago, that um, we're spending, and Bjorn Lomborg, um, the author of The Skeptical Environmentalist and the book Cool It, uh, he brings us up also that perhaps 
um, and I'm not saying I condone this or agree with this, this is a topic of discussion, that perhaps all the money and the funding and the attention we're putting into these singular species, such as the panda bear or the rhino or the elephant, could be better spent if we spread it around to the complete biodiversity um, envelope or umbrella of our planet. There was one um, conservationist who made a rather um, contentious statement that he would gladly eat the last panda bear if the money would end up going to uh, other species. What do you think about that kind of a concept? Well, you know, I, I think it's a, a very complex one as you, as you acknowledge and I think partly it's because we have inherently we have our own priorities, right, about what's important. We have our own desires. We love certain species. We want to see them there. It means a lot to us to to know that pandas are there. We're not going to lose them. Um, but I think the argument that you're uh, profiling right now is more about if we were um, looking at the system, there's just not enough money to do everything we need to do. There isn't enough time. There's not enough resources. How do you take what's limited and get maximum out of it? And so as you seek to try to identify your priorities and what resources you have to uh, direct to those priorities, is it feasible to bring a rhino above the Okavango Delta's system integrity or water abstraction from a particular region that might um, impact a whole wetland system or development that might occur and remove an entire um, ecosystem. How do we how do we balance those efforts, and how do we balance those funds? Now, in some respects, people who would pay to save a rhino are not going to be interested in generating funds to um, to to sustainably develop palm oil plantations in West Africa. The the impact of palm oil plantations, if not done well, can be devastating to many more species than just one. So again, I think it's a Partly trying to get the education right amongst all the parties. What do we want to see? Why do we really? What is biodiversity to all of us uh, as a as a as a global community and and to us as individuals in terms of our priorities? And how do we balance that against what we really see as the main reason for conserving biodiversity? So how how do you suggest we do do that? Let's start by defining biodiversity and conservation, and uh, a lot of these are current buzzwords that uh, are bandied about in the headlines. But do you think we really understand what it means when, um, as you just said, we all have our favorite species um, that we tend to anthropomorphize or we relate to as humans because they're cute um, or because they're big, And the, but I'm not sure we always relate to them in um, – the necessary way to understand understand system function. How can you help our listeners understand why it's so critical to not only prioritize but identify what biodiversity means and how that is so completely, inextricably linked to our public health well, and vice versa. Our public health is linked to our biodiversity, the health of our biodiversity. Well, let me um, start with a little story about my own my own journey on this, um, because and it not necessarily reaching to the biodiversity plane, but I did my PhD in East Africa, and I was a veterinarian interested in wildlife diseases and human and the human wildlife interface back in the day, and still am. 
and I was focused then on wild dogs, understanding how wild dogs uh, were decimated by domestic animal diseases and, and what could we do to protect wild dogs. And as I continued my work in Eastern Africa and then started in Botswana, what became very clear, you're working with communities and you're talking to them about wild dogs and trying to save wild dogs and what are we going to do about wild dogs. And I still believe very strongly in it. But you're looking at families with children who may not live, who don't have shoes, who aren't going to school, people who have very low expectations of health and survivorship and have very little at all to their names. And it became a, a real enigma for me, a very a, a real ethical challenge. How do you how do you work with people who have so little of which you would never be toler tolerant to um, and expect them to have priorities over certain species just because they're wonderful and they're special and we need them? So uh, that journey progressed to the point that you begin to see that, that if communities are healthy, if ecosystems are healthy, more species will persist. And so it's do we, do we, do I chase after trying to protect wild dogs as a species or do I pull it back a little bit and look at the, the more, uh, distal problems? That is that humans, uh, communities are poor. Their health is poor. They are struggling to survive. Um, they do it however they can. And so the ecosystems are affected accordingly. So as we seek to develop, uh, I think really the, the Convention on Biologic Diversity is not saying that, that there is no room for human development. Quite the contrary. It's saying that humans and natural areas need to be um, developed in a way that's beneficial for both. Because poor communities are going to devastate um, their local environment just, just to survive. And so part of that is also making the case to understand that as ecosystem services decline, as ecosystems degrade, water quality degrades, for example, one of the areas of research that I'm focused on. And you see that the water quality goes down, that diarrheal disease goes up, and that people and their children are affected and mortality can be a consequence. So there is a very strong need for humans to understand that if an ecosystem is functioning, I will benefit as well in terms of my own health. And I think that is where we start making momentum because to try to find economic value for a, a panda bear uh, is going to be quite, quite challenging. But to try to bring to bear the idea that the system itself and all the species that depend on it um, could could really need to, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to fix something here on my computer, but uh, we really need to um, think about it holistically. So it goes back to um, a phrase that I've used all the time, that, and I'm sure this is what you're saying also, that conservation is not just about saving wildlife or species. Conservation is about people. When we get people taken care of and we provide for their economic, social, and health and welfare, then we are at the same time providing for the um, social health, welfare, and well-being of the ecosystem. Um, I hope our listeners are understanding how critical and in, inter, intertwined these linkages are, that they're not separate, that um, people from – I think we just lost Kathy, so I'm going to add her in again. And um, I'm sorry, just hold on for a second. We lost Kathy, and uh, I'm bringing her back, and here we go. So I think what Kathy is getting to is that um, we need to – as a species, uh, Kathy, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, we lost you there for a second. 
Um, so I was just reiterating um, what I think we're getting to here and what this um, World Health Organization uh, workshop that you're going to be attending is helping people understand that the um, health of the public and, and the people that you're talking about, especially or that we're talking about, especially in the poorer areas, the uh, abject poverty where choices and options are limited, is integral mm-hmm. to um, bringing up planetary health. And that if we don't conjoin these two um, facets of understanding, then we're, we're sort of fighting a losing battle. You can't separate the two, planetary health from human health at this point in time. Kathy, we're going to go to a break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back, and sorry about that. We're having a little technical difficulties. It seems sometimes the internet connection in Virginia can be just like it is in Africa, which is can be a little iffy. So we're back with Kathy, Dr. Kathy Alexander and her husband, um, Dr. Mark Vanderwall, and we're talking about uh, building the bridge between public health and biodiversity, and we've gone over why should we care about diet biodiversity and why should we conserve. Um, so let's get into, and we've talk to a little bit about the value of why um, species and landscape are of concern to us and how they link to public health and biodiversity. So, Kathy, you and I have had many, many conversations. Um, here's a question for you. What species, in terms of the, the context that we're talking about, what species do we need to have that creates a viable ecosystem and what is essential to maintain service provisions and diversity health? Well, I think that's the the big question at large, and I suspect it's not just one species. The idea is that as a system declines and as we lose species, that there will be either a gradual decline or some threshold of change where the, <clears throat> the, the ecosystem itself won't be able to provide services and we'll start seeing those impacts. But that's one of the challenges in terms of uh, uh, the Convention on Biological Diversity and countries monitoring their progress is to identify how we can understand biodiversity loss and how do we understand the effects of activities that we might engage in to reduce loss. So it won't be just one species. Now, there is, I think, a valid argument that certain species, if they are there and they are thriving, they may be a very important uh, signature that a system is doing well. So well is, that, isn't, that, isn't that the term keystone species? Right, and... You know, there's a lot of, uh, in terms of keystone species, there, you know, there's a lot of different ways of looking at that and the scope. But the idea that if you have saved those, uh, well, they're really more sort of flagship species. But if you, if you are in the position to maintain viable, healthy populations, uh, then the, the system is likely to be doing well. And that goes as well for aquatic systems. You might have certain indicator species. But that's the, the trick in, and the problem is, is that systems are different, very different across the, the globe, across okay. the areas. We just used three words, three terms here that maybe our listeners need some help in understanding because we're talking about some complex issues here. We use the term keystone species. We use the term flagship species. And we use the term indicator species. Can you help us understand the, the variations between those three terms? Well, um, the flagship species tend to be ones that are signature species for that area where people see them as being very important. Um, they, they mark an interest and a platform for generating support for a particular area. Like, like they, elephants. They may not, yeah, they may not have a huge ecological importance or provide a great deal of service, but they are flagship in the sense that they designate a particular area uh, to humans and the importance of that area. Now, and also species, under a flagship species, doesn't it sort of um, contain or umbrella the species that benefit from that particular? Well, that's the idea of Keystone. And, and, and in fact, Mark's asking to, to contribute here. Let me just let him contribute to this. Hi. Hi. Yeah, Ellie. <clears throat> Sorry, I can't hear your conversation, but just in terms of Keystone species, I mean, keystone species are, are species in an ecosystem that are considered to be 
critical to the functioning of that system. Any, any change in that species or loss of that species will affect the functioning of that ecosystem dramatically. Okay, so like the loss of wolves or the loss of an elephant? Yeah, um, top predators, mega herbivores, uh, you know, species like that. And I think this is why a lot of, a lot of focus is placed on um, conserving um, major species like that. But then, you know, you could get, you could get a, a, a flagship species which is something that is very visible to people, something that has an emotional um, impact on, you know, people's understanding of what conservation is. And, and I think this is why so much money is being spent on certain species, because they tend to be flagship. They tend to draw people's emotions. And the, the conserving them in, in themselves may not be that important to an ecosystem. Could very well be, but not always. And, and, uh, but, but in preserving those species, one hopes, that the large NGOs, the big conservation organizations, the people putting money into those species is also considering the the ecosystem in which those species um, exist. And so um, in a way, laterally, you are hopefully conserving the ecosystem by focusing on an individual species. That's another – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it does, that doesn't always happen, of course, but I think it is quite important. I mean, if, if we look at the, uh, you know, the oceans, for example, I mean, the issue of sharks and whales and, and uh, the utilization of, of those species and dolphins and tuna and things like that, you know, we, 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 by focusing on the, on the, the exploitation and, and, and um, the need for conservation of individual species, flagship species, Hopefully, we, we spend money, we find out more about those ecosystems, we understand more about their functioning, and hopefully, as an offshoot, we are actually trying to conserve those ecosystem functions um, through putting a lot of money into these flagship species. So as an example, understanding um, when we started to see the loss of the polar bear, it helped us to further understand climate change and its effects and further understand not only the effects on, of climate change or warming weather or melting sea ice on polar bears, but what it will do to the rest of humanity, um, the rest of the continents on this earth and earth as a whole. So once again, that ties in public health and biodiversity. Would you say that's a good example? Yeah, that is a good example. And in fact, I mean, the example, that example uh, the, the polar bear is, is probably a keystone species in that, that system. It's also a flagship species and, and um, it, probably an indicator species as well. So the, the polar bear fits all three you know, definitions of, of the, the, the species that we try and conserve and that people tend to focus on. Um, tell us what indicator species means. Well, an indicator species is, really is a species that's very sensitive to any form of ec- ecological change within the, uh, an ecosystem or, or within a, a habitat or whatever, you know, um, landscape unit that you're looking at. But, um, you know, if one looks at aquatic systems and we take uh, amphibians, for example, particularly frogs, frogs, 
seem to be very, very, very sensitive to very subtle changes in um, water systems, in wetland systems, um, particularly things like pollution and contamination. So if one's monitoring um, frogs, could be a particular species of frog or a whole guild of frogs, and one sees dramatic changes in the frog species, which if you weren't studying, you wouldn't particularly notice. But once you start seeing dramatic changes in populations of the frogs, you can suspect that there are there are some there's some change taking place in the ecosystem as a whole, and and something is causing a change. Now those those particular species that you're studying are indicators of the general health of that that ecosystem. And when they start changing, then you know there's something going on in that ecosystem um, that needs to be addressed because functioning is, is being affected by something. And, and so you can imagine in that environment, Ellie, that if, if frog populations are declining because of water quality, that that's also going to be influencing humans, but we may not be able to detect that as clearly and as early as we might if we were monitoring biodiversity changes. Exactly. Okay, so this sort of takes us way back to the 1960s and Rachel Carson and Silent Spring and E.O. Wilson with the Sinking Ark. Um, we've been discussing trophic cascades and trophic levels and biodiversity loss for close on 50 years. Um, and nothing has really changed in terms of the argument that we have to pay attention. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, let's bring it up to today. How... Uh, we're already being affected. I mean, DDT, we, we went through cultural shifts and uh, major shifts in, in removing DDT from the landscapes or poisons and toxins. We're understanding more and more the effects of our chemicals and our uh, technology and our inventions and discoveries on our ecosystems. So how today can we encourage people to start paying attention and listen and make these connections so that, let's say, within the next five or ten years, which are going to be really critical with the way things are going, that um, it's not a new problem, but it now is a problem that needs solutions and attention. Well, and I think that's a, <clears throat> I think that's the main focus of this workshop, for example, where all of these different delegates from different African countries that are signatories to the convention are going to come because... The, the idea there is that it's all good and well acknowledging there's these problems and potential uh, interactions, but what we need now is action. So how do we actually integrate biodiversity into public health planning? What would you want to know? What connections need to be made between Department of Agriculture, Wildlife Department, Water Affairs, for example, whatever the agencies are called, but in terms of their sphere of responsibility, and making the case that, you know, malaria um, issues, uh, that there are specific diseases, diarrheal disease, leptospirosis, various other things that could increase in incidence depending on how things are handled in that particular ecosystem and coming with good examples so that people can really grab a hold of something which used to be somewhat esoteric in some respects in people's thinking. Loss of biodiversity sad. But we're saying it's not just sad, it's bad. And for the public, we need to embrace that idea that that there's a larger picture at hand, and, and, and it is sad when we lose species, but in terms of the entire global population, it's bad because it signals a change that we might not be able to reverse if we let it go too far. Well, I'd say we're already hitting some of these points, 
and um, it if, with the, if you follow the news headlines or sighties or what's going on, um, it's almost turning into a conservation fatigue on, yeah. the, on the public's part. So we're reaching tipping points more and more. We are losing things. Things are crashing. As you said, we are going to lose some species, but we don't have to lose them all. How do we engage um, on a larger scale? I understand at this workshop that a lot of critical discussions are going to be taking place, but let's say you're the general public, John Q., Jane Q. public, and you know these talks are taking place. How do we ensure the solutions or the implementations actually filter down to the general populations, whether it be the villager and Africa or somebody in the inner city in Chicago or somebody up here in the middle of the Rocky Mountains or Blacksburg, Blacksburg Virginia? Well, I, I think programs like yours are, are very important in terms of trying to connect scientists like myself to the general public so that the story is heard, so that they can appreciate it in terms that they're comfortable with. And, of course, we, you know, the publications are important. The scientific realm is essential to this process, but it's not always something that is available and, and, and understandable to, to people who are not even certain they care particularly. So having it brought into the popular media in, in, in the way that you're doing and, and others, I hope, promoting a broader understanding of, of the importance. And, and I guess there's a bit of, uh, you know, we, we need to back up a bit in my thinking because one can get very overwhelmed and depressed about how we're losing species and so many ecosystems are really in danger of complete collapse. But there's so much that can be done. And maybe we won't be able to do everything at once and we can't make everything. And we're not unlikely to bring things back to any point prior to our population being so large and our needs being so large. But restoration, uh, development of sustainable uh, approaches can try, uh, I think, can contribute a lot towards trying to me- mediate or mitigate these damage uh, ecosystems to contribute to restoration of these ecosystems. So, you know, the, the, let's not throw the bathwater out with the baby, so to speak. Let's, let's figure out how we can make it the best it can be, given the constraints that are on it. And I think the recognition, again, is that, that we have to take a holistic approach, that, that we can't just try to save animals in, in absence of, of considering populations that are in those areas and their needs, because that's, that's a, you know, what they say, spinning into the wind, right? I mean, you're not going to get very far unless you really think about what's the, the local landscape. And when you start talking about indicators, that's where the complexity arises. Every system is so different. The offtake is different. The institutional policy is different. Um, the, the biodiversity, the structure of those systems is different. So that your strategy for monitoring biodiversity conditions and, and the effects of your restoration activities or your interventions will be uh, complicated by the fact that they'll be different. And so that is a major hurdle for us to cover. But I think that if, as we move forward and we make this a more easily understood process, which I hope is partly what we're doing today, that everyone can contribute at some level in bringing priority to this. Well, you make a very good argument to answer the question, why bother? Why should any single individual bother? So what Kathy has been talking about gives a very good indication of why all of us, any of us, each of us should bother to conserve, to make any 
a small, large uh, change in our daily lifestyles. There is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to conservation. It's very dependent upon each area, the activity, the human population, the development in the wildlife and the different various species that uh, that live in each of these ecosystems. Uh, so we're going to uh, take a short break here. If you'd like to call into the show, please call us at one eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight, or you can email me at w i l d i z e at wildeyes.org. Please check out our website at www.wildeyes.org, and you can learn more about uh, Dr. Kathy Alexander's work by visiting uh, http colon slash slash www.vt.edu or her Facebook page at Caracal Botswana or the Caracal uh, website and their blog spot Health Botswana. So we'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back, and this is Ellie Weiss with Dr. Kathy Alexander and Dr. Mark Vanderwall, and we're talking about the linkages between public health and biodiversity. I'd like to bring up a quote from uh, Dr. Palladino, who is talking about uh, the intangibility of the replacement value of nature. 
and he states that art might somehow someday be replaced, but the full symphony of Savannah landscape could never be replaced. He further says, let's look at biodiversity as all the different words in the dictionary, or let's say nature as our thesaurus. What happens to our earthly language, our diversity, when animals start going extinct? It would be like all the instruments in the orchestra ending note into silence. How would the loss affect our public health? Kathy and Mark, um, I, I know you have some interesting things to say here. Uh, can you join in? Well, you know, I, I think it's a very powerful statement, and I think that's why, uh, you know, it makes m- most of us really sad to think that, that we would ever lose polar bears or rhinos. I mean, how would you ever ever retrieve such a loss? Um, the idea, the analogy between a, a work of art, whilst you might be able to do other art, you would lose that work of art, which obviously a species is is an extraordinary endpoint to um, an effort that's taken, you know, millions of years to, to, to create. But, I, you know, I, as I think about this and the sadness that it brings, I think in many ways it might even be, you know, if you think about um, a museum with amazing works of art where the artists are dead and we hundreds of years later can look at it and admire it and we wouldn't want any one of those pieces to be lost. But if the museum was under fire and we thought the whole thing was going to burn down and we would lose everything, we might have a different approach to how we um, rescued the, the, the artwork in that museum. Now, and there wouldn't be easy decisions to be made. How would you prioritize one particular artist's work over another? Now, that's a trivial um, analogy, really, to, to the loss of a species, but it does bring to bear the, the constant conflict we have. Personal, organizational, governments, how do you balance uh, the, the, the terrible loss of a species and the needs of a particular species versus that of an ecosystem or versus that of human populations or, or global communities. And I think that's the struggle. And there isn't an easy answer, but ultimately I don't think it's going to be plausible that we're going to save everything. I, I think that there's too many people. So if we're not going to be able to save everything, what do we do to try to do our best? And I think that's the struggle that we're under now, which the Convention on Biological Diversity, I think, is, is trying to promote, is that countries can take a role in trying to implement policies and programs and monitoring systems that say, we value biodiversity, we will do things to stop it, and we will monitor our progress so that as a global community, we can do as much as we can, whilst I don't think any of us can guarantee the loss of, uh, that, that, that there won't be loss of additional species. I think you've said uh, two things that struck struck me as um, uh, highlighted. One, you said it might be trivial, and the other is we have to make these decisions. I don't think this um, the analogy between the museum and the works of art and the fire starting and trying to figure out what we need to save is trivial at all because that's where we're at. We're literally at that point. The fire is at the museum's door, and we as a um, planetary group of uh, humans who are designing this planet to meet most of our needs without meeting all the needs of the species, which is this discussion that we're having, biodiversity and planetary and, and human health. 
that we have to start making these decisions. And it's going to take um, every individual to participate. So uh, once again, that's the point of Wild Eyes and the show and having guests is to help people understand that they can make a difference. Every day, every time you clap your hands or blink your eyes, you can make a difference. You have the opportunity to make a choice that will uh, move things forward or um, continue the status quo. And at this point, the status quo is no longer acceptable. Um, I think this circles back again, Kathy and Mark. We, we come back to this oftentimes uh, that it, in our previous conversations that the aesthetic appreciation. I know we got slammed a couple times with some comments about a culture of enjoyment uh, or the aesthetics of appreciation that we work toward in conservation, but I think it's critical, and uh, especially with this analogy of art. I, I agree with you, and I, and I, you know, I, I think that that there's, in some respects, you've hinted at another big challenge is that we can't even all agree on how this should be done, and and that's a major issue. So, uh, not that we want to climb into that controversy, but for example, there are people that feel that in terms of elephants and lions that they <clears throat> they shouldn't be utilized because it's actually going to drive the population down, and there's others that feel that utilization is going to be a very important mechanism, and particularly in terms of lions, for maintaining areas to keep their populations going. So the, the, the conservation of biodiversity is uh, complicated by the fact that everybody has fairly different valuation systems, uh, different approaches that they think are tenable in terms of conserving biodiversity, and, uh, and it's very emotional. So when you try now to um, engage that environment, it becomes very complicated and difficult. And, and I think it's a really important move to bring it in as an institutional framework, to take some of the emotion out of it, to try to look at it as, as plainly as we can. If these ecosystems don't function, if land areas cannot be maintained for wildlife and, and for forests and all the other requirements we need, then there will be problems. And how do we make that work? Well, it will be different in different locations. And it may not fit everybody's idea of what's the best way to do this. And that's unlikely to happen. No, no solution ever fits any, everybody's uh, a comfort zone. And there, there is the need to be a little more open-minded and, and more um, flexible as we seek as a community to come together and figure out what is the best strategy that serves uh, the greater good, and, and yes, everything's going to have problems. There won't be anything that's perfect that everyone agrees on and that achieves exactly what it's meant to do. But we have to try our best, and I think that coming together and instead of criticizing, offering solutions um, or contributing towards solutions is very important. And, in fact, what you were mentioning, if everybody just did one thing, one positive thing, not complain or critique or um, bring anybody down, but just, you know, in terms of the conservation sectors. But if everybody, everyone, the person who works at the, in the mines up to the person who's uh, working at the, the White House, if we could all just think about one personal thing we could do to contribute, something positive, some, uh, some step forward, however tiny, even in our own lives, and if everybody in the whole world did that, could you imagine what kind of a, what kind of a situation we would have if everyone just decided, I can't fix it, but I can just take one little tiny step forward and do my little bit to bring some positive impact 
You, you bring up a really excellent point, and actually there's a fabulous book out now um, called Hope Beneath Our Feet, and it's an anthology by um, many writers, uh, Michael Pollan, uh, Barry Lopez, uh, uh, okay, I'm, I can't think of them all right now, but it's a fabulous little book of stories of covering all these topics. Why bother? Why should we conserve? What does it have to do with me? Um, am I overwhelmed? Is all overwhelming? And um, it's not a pretty picture, and I think that gets people to a point of saying, why should I bother? There's nothing I can do. And I guess what we're trying to say, and what this book points out, is there is plenty we can do. And um, so step back from the big picture of uh, how depressing it can get and the, the, the biodiversity loss that we're facing except the fact that we are going to lose some species, but we don't have to lose it all, and take a chance and take the challenge personally to go do something, whether it's drive your car one day less a week, stop eating meat one day a week, reduce your carbon footprint by doing one thing. Um, Bjorn Lomborg goes ahead and talks more about... Um, uh, in his book, Cool It, uh, that we seem to have put all our eggs in the one CO2 basket where just like conserving species, indicator, flagship, signature, and keystone species, panda bears, polar bears, elephants, and rhino, that if we put all our eggs in the one basket, we are, we are at, um, in danger perhaps of Losing sight of those problems we can fix. Kathy mentioned earlier malaria, disease, water quality. Um, so, and, and in fact, Ellie, if I can add, you know, one of the things that we, we were just uh, releasing a paper tomorrow on the effects of climate change on diarrheal disease in Botswana, and one of the things that uh, comes out very strongly when you start looking at this very carefully is that the effects of climate change really hit us. Uh, for the most part, I'm not talking about giant floods and things like that, but the, the, the day-to-day change in health and, and, and other items, heat stroke and things that we think are going to happen as a consequence of climate change, um, arise because communities are vulnerable, because of weakened sanitation, because of weakened hygiene, poverty, ecosystem degradation. If we can strengthen these points of vulnerability, uh, then climate change is not, for example, climate change in terms of my life I, is probably not going to, I'm not going to feel it tomorrow, for example. I, my water quality is not going to change because I have access to clean water. I have an air conditioner. I have a heater. Most of the environmental shocks I will be protected from. But those who are, are poor will not be. And so it goes back again to the idea that that managing our ecosystem function now, protecting ecosystem service provision, looking and protecting communities at their vulnerable points, the interdependent pathways that occur amongst all of this, meaning that biodiversity is just an important part as economic development is in maintaining the health of our communities and protecting us from future changes that might bring devastation, i.e. climate change. So this is something each community, each neighborhood could get involved in. If you had an agent of change, so to speak, um, a, a community organizer, we've just, through this show, this past hour, have laid out a really good strategic plan that anybody could take part in. It starts with communication and prioritizing what's important, not only for the community members, the humans themselves, but the services they need from the area in which they live. Yes? 
I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think I think the important thing to recognize is that we are making important positive strides. Biodiversity is a topic on everybody's you know portfolio. It's on the desk. It's there. It didn't used to be. It is now part of government planning. We're we're trying to integrate it. There are huge steps. So I think the importance is to focus on the positive momentum. Um, because, I, unfortunately, the negative ends, ends up being the noteworthy and, and what we need to hear about. And the positive tends not to be uh, too widely discussed, i.e., all of these people from, from Africa getting together to talk about how biodiversity is important in public health and how governments need to and will try to integrate those considerations. What a huge achievement. It wouldn't even have been a discussion. So I think the convention has made a lot of forward movement. I think the parties that have signed in are trying. I think countries recognize the importance. I think that we all as individuals can get excited about the good things, can think about what we can do to make it even better. And whilst there are a lot of negative news out there, it doesn't mean that we need to stop. It means we need to keep the balance. We are making positive strides, and if everybody pulls in, even even if it's that you, you uh, endorse people who have <clears throat> green agendas, you look carefully at different uh, legislation that's passing, that you bring your voice to bear, that you change your day-to-day life in your home, as you mentioned. All of those things are so critical. And with one common voice, even if it's different ways of doing things, if we all can put something towards the idea that biodiversity is important inherently across sectors, I think we could make some really important progress. I agree. So once again, what we're helping our listeners understand here is that we each have a voice. And each voice is important toward the bigger picture. Our not only our community, our individual, our state, nation, continent, country, um, public health, and biodiversity are inextricably linked. So, what's important to your daily life is going to affect what happens to the planet around you. So, right. we provided a, a format that anybody can take and start a, a conversation, a communication, and a platform to get their uh, neighbors, their friends, their colleagues, and their government engaged. Uh, so, K- Kathy and Mark, I'd like to thank you so much for being um, our guest today. Um, I'm hoping that after this workshop in Mozambique, you'd be um, co- you'd like to come back and tell us how things went, so we don't leave everybody hanging at, in, in terms of how a discussion on this level, parties of um, nations and governments uh, decide to work things out. Would you be willing to come back? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for inviting us. It's always a pleasure to you know, contribute to what you're doing here. Well, thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure talking with you. And once again, uh, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Kathy Alexander and Dr. Mark Vanderwall, you can visit their website at caracal.org. It's a biodiversity and education center in Kasani, Botswana. They are a grantee of Wild Eyes. We've been supporting their work, which is crucial and critical on the ground toward everything we talked about today in educating the local community to understanding not only public health, but their their connection to their biodiversity in that area. So um, once again, I'd like to thank you for joining uh, uh, Our Wild World. And I'm sorry, that is caracal.info, C-A-R-A-C-A-L dot I-N-F-O. And uh, learn more about what Kathy and Mark are doing on the ground in Botswana. And uh, in the meantime, I wish you would step out into Our Wild World and put your feet on the grass 
and think about some of the things that you can do today, right now, to make our wild world a better place for all of us. So until next week, thank you very much, and thank you, Kathy and Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 